I'm going to start up front with a correction today. I'm kicking off today's episode with a correction. Uh, We're going to be talking about self-care, self-compassion, and self-awareness on today's episode. We are not going to be talking about self-therapy. As a layperson who is not a psychologist, I will use that term a few times over the course of the episode, but be aware when you hear it that self-therapy is not a thing. So in addition to being a non-psychologist layperson, I am also a lazy person, and it was easier to put a disclaimer up front than it was to go into the episode itself and replace every mention I made about therapy with the term self-care. I'm Eric Bowman, the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. Today, I'm going to be talking with two psychologists, Dr. Melissa Thiessen and Dr. Karen Dick, who have started The Intentional Therapist, a network created to help female mental health professionals stay healthy and happy through intentional and playful self-care. You can go to their website by clicking the link in the show notes today. I'm Dr. Melissa Thiessen. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice in Ottawa. And uh, I've previously worked in um, rural uh, community mental health setting, which is actually how Karen and I first met. Uh, Also previously worked for the Canadian Psychological Association as the registrar for accreditation and um, director of education. Uh, And both of those uh, roles actually have really fueled a lot of the interest in self-care that brought Karen and I together on our our current initiative of the intentional therapist. So maybe I'll let Karen introduce herself and and then we can talk more about uh, what we're doing. Sure, that sounds good, thanks. And uh, thanks very much for having us today, Eric. Uh, We're both looking forward to this conversation. Uh, So I'm also a clinical psychologist in private practice. I'm actually based in Oak Bank, Manitoba, which is just a, a small community just outside Winnipeg. Um, I've been in private practice for about five years, and prior to that, I was in the rural and northern psychology program at the Department of Clinical Health Psychology at the University of Manitoba. So uh, certainly much of my career has involved providing psychology services to folks from rural and northern communities, and as Melissa mentioned, that's how her and I met. And uh, certainly one of the things that I really enjoyed in my past job was being able to work with a lot of different mental health providers. And I think part of that experience and just my own experiences kind of fueled my interest in workplace wellness and just more specifically, I think over time, self-care for psychologists and other mental health providers, particularly women which uh, fueled our interest in developing the Intentional Therapist website and, uh, and resources. And so I, my understanding of the Intentional Therapist is that intention is the main word there, right? I mean, it's your therapists and you're looking to assist therapists. Uh, it's not something that we think about very often, I think, uh, is the mental health of the mental health providers so and you said to me i I, in our email correspondence you uh, specified that women especially are are the ones that you want to uh, get this message out to that you need to reach out and you need to make sure that you're okay and melissa why why is that uh, specifically a population that you think needs to hear this message 
Yeah. So let me just preface this by saying, uh, certainly we're, we're not trying to say that male mental health professionals don't need to attend to their self-care by focusing on women. It's uh, of course, partly just because we're women ourselves and we can understand the female perspective much more easily. Uh, But, and we also appreciate that male mental health professionals face some of their own unique challenges, but what we definitely know, and the reason why we started this initiative and wanted to focus specifically on female mental health professionals is because there are some unique factors that impact women uh, disproportionately compared to men. And so probably no surprise to anyone, but just to make it really explicit, the biggest factor that impacts female mental health professionals in terms of self-care challenges is gender socialization. So many women, certainly not all, uh, but, but many women grow up uh, you know, from, from the day they're born, in some cases, um, being exposed to very different messages than men or male uh, uh, individuals of our species. And so these messages are very much about taking care of others. Uh, the messages are about doing for others. The messages are about prioritizing others, about putting others' needs before your own. And sometimes that can be good, but of course, uh, what that creates is a scenario where uh, a girl becomes a woman, goes into a caretaking profession, and basically she's been receiving these messages about caring for others all the time in her personal life, and then is also in this profession where caring for others is, is so important. And so it can become then very, very difficult to, uh, to do what one needs to take care of themselves. And we can talk probably in a minute about some of the other factors that are just generally, I think, a challenge for mental health professionals, both men and women. But certainly when it comes to women, it's, it's those gender socialization uh, messages and norms that, that really play uh, a huge role. And there's also some, some kind of interesting historical factors, even if we just look at self-care um, very narrowly. And this is one of our uh, points as well, that self-care is not just massages and bubble baths and chocolate or, you know, sort of these indulgent things. It's, it's much, much broader than that. And we can maybe get back to that in a moment. Uh, but even if we just think about self-care in terms of leisure time, right, what you do outside of work, um, and another one of our messages is that this is integral to our work as mental health professionals. But if we just take this tiny slice of leisure time, historically, women's leisure has been tied to their male partner. So uh, as men's status improved, as their financial resources improved, they had more access to leisure. And so did you know their partners or wives. Uh, and so Uh, women often weren't even entitled to their own leisure, right? Which just feeds back into those gender socialization messages and and norms um, that that people just start to accept and don't even question. And then it becomes very difficult for for a woman to to do the things that are going to be really important for her to do to be able to sustain one's health, especially in a professional caregiving role. Right. Gender socialization. Can you define that for me? I think, well, I can speak a little bit about that, I guess. Um, And I I think, 
you know, I think socialization and the messages that come with our identity as being one gender or another, they come from various sources, right? There's, there's the media, there's messages that we get from perhaps parents, family members, um, other influential adults, or even peers as we, as we grow. Um, so I think the messages can come from various um, sources. And one of the terms that's used in uh, a book called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, is the human giver syndrome. And uh, these authors talk specifically about how this is a syndrome that disproportionately affects women. And it's, it's messages that um, come from our meaning being associated with being pretty, happy, calm, generous and attentive to the needs of others. So from these authors perspective, I mean, that's a pretty powerful message that women receive in various forms that kind of contribute to our current practices and, and what can make it really difficult for us to give ourselves permission to do the things that we need to do to stay healthy and maintain those caregiving roles as well. And especially since this pandemic has started, I've spoken to many people and I've seen many studies too. Uh, and Melissa, you were talking about leisure time, right? And how oh, many, many, you know, decades of that has been tied to uh, the male partner and, and how well the male partner is doing and, you know, the leisure time that's provided. But I, I have heard also during the, this pandemic, so even women who are, you know, extremely successful professionals, you know, maybe both partners are professors at a university, they still end up taking more time off their work to do the caregiving at home with the, with the kids. Uh, and that the husband tends to do more of that. Uh, their job ends up seeming more important, even if it doesn't pay as well, even if it's not as uh, important or time consuming. Uh, so I'm wondering if that's something that you're finding uh, talking to some therapists that you're, that the pandemic has affected it in that way. Definitely. I think that is a common experience many women have had. And of course, uh, many people have probably heard the term being used over this past year and a half, the she session, right? How women have been uh, at large disproportionately impacted by the pandemic uh, in terms of women having to uh, lessen their hours in the workforce or even leave the workforce entirely um, because of, of child's uh, rearing or caretaking or uh, elderly parent caretaking needs as well, right? And, and what's interesting too is that, um, it, you know, there's, there's also research that shows that even though in recent years, uh, what we might call more feminist views are becoming more, more common, not only amongst women, but also amongst men, there still is this, um, this gender divide that sort of the the stereotypical notion that a woman is going to be responsible for taking care of children or is going to be responsible for running the home and, and that these kind of stereotypical roles were, will persist unless people have discussions about them. Uh, and unfortunately, the reality is most people don't have explicit discussions about the, uh, you know, the division of labor in a home, for example. And studies have even shown before children come into a home um, or come into the picture, even if a couple 
uh, has fairly egalitarian views uh, about you know, division of labor within the home. Once children are in, in the picture, uh, often it's again, stereotypically the, the female uh, or the individual who takes more of a stereotypical female role in the relationship who kind of those responsibilities fall to. Again, if there isn't some kind of discussion, some kind of explicit acknowledgement of, uh, of all of this. And it actually reminds me of another uh, important factor that tends to fall more often on women, which is uh, the what's sometimes called uh, administrative load or emotional load or invisible labor at, in, within the home. And again, this, this applies whether children are in the picture or not, but just tends to be amplified when there are children. So this is things like you know, making sure that there's enough toilet paper in the home, which of course became a very good thing at the, a big thing at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but also things like, you know, making sure that bills are paid, scheduling dentist appointments, um, repairs in the house, like just all of the sort of the background things that aren't necessarily always all that visible, especially to somebody who's not doing them, but still require a lot of attention and foresight and uh, responsiveness. And so, so that's just like one example of some of the things that often go unspoken, undiscussed, and, but yet take time, right? Again, somebody has to do that. And stereotypically, at least, because of the, um, the differences between how men and women are socialized, these things tend to fall on the shoulders of, of women. So uh, when we're talking about a therapist who does, and presumably over the course of the last year and a half has been doing the bulk of their work virtually, right? Remote. And I think a lot of the time they're taking on more clients as well, right? I mean, there are very few therapists, I think, in Canada who don't have a completely full caseload right now. Uh, and Karen, is that one of the factors that... Uh, you know, leads people to ignore their own self-care that, uh, that they leave that sort of by the wayside? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I certainly agree with you. My discussions with other psychologists and therapists, I'm hearing exactly what you're saying. I know I'm experiencing that. I have a much uh, fuller caseload than I would ideally, I guess, like to have. And the pandemic, just, you know, the need is so great. So, uh, like many therapists, I have a lot of former clients coming back and, you know, I, I don't want to turn them away. So I think that's definitely a factor. And, you know, I think there's so many factors that really feed into why therapists kind of overall are, are challenged when it comes to uh, taking care of themselves. And, you know, I think just by the nature of our, our roles, it naturally attracts people who really value and feel uh, a sense of reward um, from being in a caregiver role. And I think just by that very nature, people who who are in caregiver roles and they find those comfortable, just making ourselves a priority uh, is a challenge. And, you know, the other thing I think uh, that's really come to light uh, in, in my personal experiences is the lack of discussion that goes on in our training about um, what uh, Norcross and Vandenbos talk about is the hazards in our in our work. Um, you know, if you think about it, I, I think most of us really weren't very aware of some of the, the typical hazards that this line of work creates. And, you know, it's things like uncertainty of, of success, 
uh, the stress involved in certain client presentations, having to manage and monitor our own reactions and maintain this level of empathy, no matter how the clients present in, in our office, hearing, you know, just such tragic uh, events that people go through and how that can change our worldview. You know, I, I don't think many of us had discussions about that as we went through our training in terms of looking at um, how do we deal with some of those hazards. And, you know, I think the other hazard that's there that that is mentioned in the book, leaving it at the office as well, is some of the messages we receive on a broader level that may cause us to devalue our work. And, you know, until more recently, I think mental health has been kind of devalued, right? It's uh, medical, like physical ailments seem to be the priority. And even when we talk about mental health issues, often pharmacological interventions seem to be prioritized by uh, the medical system. So, you know, even those broader messages can contribute to the hazards of our work. Um, and I think we have a lot of limiting beliefs that we should be able to help everybody. And so if we have a client that's not progressing as we think they should, it's very easy to fall back on. We just need to work harder and longer. We just haven't figured it out yet. Right, right. right. And w when you say uh, that, you know, as a therapist, uh, somebody who's, you know, traditionally drawn to that caregiver role, to that uh, helping others role, that you don't really take the time for yourself that you feel awkward about doing it for yourself. Do you mean like that? It's a guilty feeling that you might have, like I'm taking some time for myself. So that's time that I could be spending with a client, helping them get better. Uh, is that what you're talking about? That sort of guilt? Yeah, I think I, we hear that word a lot. And I think Melissa and I probably experience that feeling a lot. I know that's, that's a feeling that comes up for me regularly and, and so a big part of what we're trying to encourage women to do is, is really be self-aware, think about the rules, the messages, the beliefs we have that contribute to that guilt popping up. And, you know, one of, one of our messages is we also need to do things that are going to be uncomfortable because probably they're going to create some guilty feelings, but we still need to do them. They're going to be uncomfortable and we need to do them so that we get more comfortable with doing the things that are going to ultimately lead to us being able to be good at our jobs. As Melissa said, we really want people to see this as uh, just an essential component to their jobs because really we are the tools in our in our profession and we need to take care of our tools just as a surgeon needs to sterilize it sterilize the tools and that they use to keep them in good shape it, it's really no different for us taking care of ourselves that makes sense although i don't think we are the tools in our profession is a great slogan or tagline <laughs> for the campaign <laughs> Melissa, can you give me an, an example of something that is uncomfortable but must be done? Yeah, great question, Eric. So the first thing that comes to my mind that Karen and I have actually had a few discussions about, uh, both just between the two of us and as well as with other mental health professionals, is, uh, for example, for psychologists in private practice or therapists in private practice, the issue of fees is always something that uh, raises all kinds of discomfort for people. So uh, specifically raising fees. 
Uh, and it's, it's fascinating how just, uh, you know, just generally the issue of money can be so uncomfortable. I know for myself, when I first started in private practice, after having worked for a handful of years in publicly funded services, even just the idea of exchanging money directly with the client felt really uncomfortable and foreign to me. And as I think it does for many other mental health professionals. Um, thankfully, I've gotten more comfortable with that with time uh, and have gone through the experience of raising my fees. Uh, but it certainly was uncomfortable. It's, it, uh, and, you know, sort of the first conversation with a client, you know, kind of informing them that this is going to be happening. You know, there can be all kinds of stories going through uh, our minds about that. And, you know, in some ways it's, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, when you get into a cold pool or a, a cold lake, right. And that, <laughs> that like first moment of, for me, it's especially once the water hits sort of my stomach or my chest, it's like, Oh, you know, it's That's okay. You have, legs, but, you have to dive yeah. <laughs> in or jump straight in so that yeah, you just have to yeah. push through <laughs> that uncomfortable moment. Right. And, but then this is the reality. Once you get through it, the water feels great, right? Right. Uh, and so I think a lot of us have had, have had a very similar experience when it comes to something like uh, fees and in particular raising our fees. It's something that does feel very uncomfortable, very foreign to a lot of people, especially, you know, without even getting into what are messages that people have received growing up around money, right? Money can have all kinds of limiting beliefs around it. So, you know, that can be playing a role uh, and, and then of course, just concerns about how are people going to respond, but we really see this as something that, um, is part of our self-care, right? Because if you are under, undercharging for your services, for example, um, it's going to make it a lot harder for you to, um, to, to work an appropriate number of hours a week, right? If, if you're making less money, uh, you're going to probably have more of a, a need to work more hours and to feel uh, more pushed to maybe even do things that are a bit outside of your comfort zone, right? And it can become a, a potentially a bit of a slippery slope, uh, not only to burnout, but um, to potentially even doing things that are outside of one's limits of competence. So, and, and again, we're not saying everybody needs to be charging uh, astronomical fees. It's really about charging appropriate fees. And I think many people, because of messages around money, messages around you need to give to others, it's, uh, um, it's not right to, uh, to be charging X amount, you know, somebody else is charging this amount. I think a lot of people actually get a lot of messaging for better or for worse from their own supervisors. Well, my supervisor is only charging this much, so I shouldn't charge more than they are, right? All of these things can start to, to come into play. So bottom line is just one small example of something that can be incredibly uncomfortable, but is such an important piece of our self-care. Uh, and, and again, it might be about increasing fees might be about some other aspect of money, right? Whether it's um, cancellation fees or uh, could also be just how somebody is tracking their income and expenses, right? And are you putting time aside to do that? Are you putting time aside for billing? Or is that being left, you know, when you've got, you're only running on fumes, for example, so... Right. I do find I get the money is terrifying. I, I've been picking up groceries from my neighbor for the past year and a half or so. 
and you know i'll go and i'll buy the groceries and then i'll have to you know give them the bill and and then i always feel terrible asking for the money that i spent on the groceries back right even that is still to this day i'm still awkward about it like, oh, yeah, you can do whatever i you know so i get that uh now karen you, you were talking about the way that you know as the person providing the the care that you need to keep yourself in tip-top shape in order to provide the best care that you possibly can. It sounds a lot like the messages uh, that I'm hearing from a lot of psychologists and other mental health professionals talking to frontline healthcare workers over the course mm -hmm. of the pandemic, where they're so driven to help people that they'll spend way too long, way too many hours in the hospital. Would you say that that's a similar type of field and a similar type of person that does that? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And again, I think that does go back to, you know, clearly we've chosen these professions because we really do value that role as being able to help people. And I think most of us would agree we went into this profession that that was a big motivator. Um, and when uh, a crisis comes up, stretching, having conversations with, with one, one belief that kind of can feed into us not taking care of ourselves is comparing our situations with our clients, right? Like if we have clients who, because of the pandemic, are really experiencing additional financial hardships, or there's um, conflicts in the family that have been raised because of ideas about vaccinations. And, you know, maybe we're in situations where financially, in fact, our fine right? Our income has gone up because there's so much demand. And so it's easy, I think, for us to, to compare ourselves to others. And, and um, because of that, disregard our own uh, needs for wellness activities, because in comparison, right, we've got it so much better than some of the folks that, that we might have as clients. So uh, I think it's a real slippery slope, though. And the importance, again, of taking care of ourselves. I mean, it's even highlighted in ethical codes. Uh, you know, I think, I think most, if not all, ethical codes for mental health, people in different uh, disciplines providing mental health services mention something about self-care. They might not use that term, but actually CPA ethics even use that term. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's just, it's really important to be aware of these polls though, to take us further and further away. And with the increased demand, I mean, I would say it's, it's even more important now than ever to make sure that we're finding ways to do that. And, you know, I think one of the other messages we try and give in intentional therapists is it doesn't have to take a lot of time and energy. And sometimes, in fact, small changes that we make can actually increase our energy and they can restore us. So I think that's another really important piece. The idea that self-care actually gives you back some time rather than taking up the time that you think you're going to be taking away, right? Yeah. Uh, just hold on a moment. My, my dogs are... Uh... <laughs> They're very excited about something. I don't hear. <laughs> they agree. <laughs> we were just saying that the idea is that self-care doesn't have to take up a ton of time, right? That it can give you back some time uh, by just sort of being proactive about it and uh, and taking that on. Uh, but I also found it interesting. You're talking about you know comparing yourself to a client or to somebody else and saying, well, I've got it much much better. And this is something that I think a lot of us are doing right now, certainly over the last little while, right? Where 
every day I would wake up and make sure I remembered how grateful I was to still have a job, to still be employed, to be able to do that job from home, to not lose any hours as a result of, you know, layoffs and closings and shutdowns and that sort of thing. So is that the kind of thing that you're talking about that you can just get too into your head with that? Or is that sort of practicing gratitude a separate thing from what you're talking about? Yeah, I, I see it as, as different. Um, you know, I think gratitude is such an important component, right? There's, there's research out there talking about the importance of gratitude. I think where it can be problematic when we compare ourselves to others is when the underlying message is we shouldn't be feeling the things we're feeling, right? Because right. we shouldn't be feeling... Um, you know, anxious about the situation, or we shouldn't be having these um, uncomfortable emotions because we've got it so much better. It's that those when it's with judgments about ourselves and our responses to the situation, where it's problematic, and it actually takes us away from self compassion, which we think is such an important piece of um, our wellness. And again, you know, just in general, the research on self-compassion is really, um, supporting the, the benefits of practicing self-compassion. So Melissa, you said in your email that you were all about making self-care, uh, fun and creative and easy. Explain that to me. What is a fun and creative way to care for, for oneself? <laughs> that I could practice as soon as we get off this Zoom call? <laughs> yeah. So great question, Eric. So I, I think there's lots of ways, and this is part of our message as well, that self-care is really something that needs to be individual. Uh, it's, it's different for each person, right? So what might look fun and creative and easy, uh, or not necessarily easy, because as we were saying earlier, could be uncomfortable as well, but but more importantly, fun and creative and something that speaks to you, right? Because a, a, a big part of self-care is, and actually a, a quote that we've come across is, um, is creating a life that we don't need to escape from and putting more of ourselves into our days. Truly, this is what self-care is about, whether we're talking about mental health professionals or just every single person in general. And so obviously what makes me feel like me is going to be different than what makes you feel like you. But what we really do know is that incorporating these elements of play and creativity into the things that we do is actually a big part of what's going to make each of us feel more like ourselves. So, and, and in fact, there's, um, there's also lots of research to show the benefits of play and creativity, uh, even in terms of brain development. Uh, so it's, it really is a foundational thing. Uh, and so, for example, something that is fun and, and creative um, for me and sort of helps me feel a bit more like, like myself is sort of a traditional kind of creative activity, like making something with my hands. So whether it's something, maybe doing kind of like an art project with my son, or we shared with our, um, our newsletter community and on our blog, a few months back, I actually uh, experimented with weaving plastic bags into like a doormat, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> if you'd like to give it a try, there's videos on YouTube to show my, you how. My mom um, has been doing it for years. 
Yeah. <laughs> I have to keep my uh, milk bags, the big bag that goes on the outside of the mill. I have to keep those. I cannot throw them out. I have to bring them to her because she is making mats with them. And uh, then she gives them back to me and I bring them downtown. I work with a homeless organization here in Ottawa. So that's, mm -hmm. uh, we always donate her, her mats that way. But yes, I'm very that's fantastic. It, it yeah. And actually your point about the fact that she's been doing that for years actually speaks to the value of when we do something creative, right? And, and it doesn't have to be creative in the sense of I'm an artist, right? It can be, you know, this kind of wacky, you know, making something out of plastic bags. Uh, but it, it is, it's connecting us to um, an activity that has like come before us, basically. And that can be really meaningful, right? Uh, you know, just other examples of something sort of fun and, and creative uh, might be baking, for example, for myself, that's, that's something that makes me feel like myself. Uh, Karen and I actually share a love of cake decorating. <laughs> uh, so that's, uh, that's also a great example. Um, and thankfully, things that have still been possible throughout the pandemic. Uh, yeast was difficult to come by for a while about a year ago. But right, other than that, a lot of these things have still been um, doable. So again, it, it's really about what speaks best to each individual. Um, but also, I think a really important concept here is back to that idea of being willing to do something that might be a little bit uncomfortable, or uh, in particular, when we're talking about doing things that are sort of fun and playful and creative, being willing to get a little bit messy. And this can mean messy in the sense of like, you know, paint everywhere, but it can also just mean messy in the sense of I'm willing to take a risk. I'm willing to do something that might not work out exactly how I would hope is like exactly as I would like, but I'm willing to kind of give it a try um, because that's where like possibility lies. So, uh, so I think that's a, that's a really key part of, of self-care as well, that willingness to kind of get a little bit messy. And I think kids are a fantastic example of this, right? Number one, they don't care at all about getting messy. <laughs> and as a result, they learn so much, right? They discover so many new things. They have so many new experiences. So that can be a really great example to, to follow as well. So follow the example of your own children in your own house is a good way to go about it. I get it. I would do that. But by the end of, uh, you know, six months, I'd be a Twitch streamer and I would speak only in internet acronyms. And I don't think I want that for myself, but it's a good idea though. I, you know, <laughs> follow the kids around. Uh, so Karen, with the time we have left, tell us about the intentional therapist. And if you're uh, somebody out there who says, yes, I do want to take some time for self-care, what can they do? What, what does your website provide? Yeah, sure. If, so if, if there's some women that are listening that are interested in learning more, uh, we invite you to go to our website, intentionaltherapist.ca. And on there, you'll find um, a number of, of blogs. You'll have the opportunity to sign up for our newsletter, which we send, uh, we send out on a, on a bi-weekly basis. We kind of have a major newsletter once a month, and then we send other communications out. And uh, if they sign up, uh, for the newsletter, they'll also get um, announcements about workshops and such that uh, that we offer as well. And we're really working at creating um, more connections between our members, because we really think that connection and sense of community is just so key. And how is it working so far? 
Well, so far, I think we've been getting a lot of really great feedback from uh, members who are getting our newsletters and are looking at the resources on the website. Um, we've had uh, a couple of workshops now and the feedback from the participants has been really great. Of course, they've been virtual. We hope one day to be able to have in person again. But um, yeah, so far the feedback's been, been really great. And I think women are just really appreciating um, that there's this discussion because really we the intention is to have this discussion way before burnout happens. We want we want people to be thinking about this and talking about this as uh, as a proactive kind of preventative measure. Well, terrific. I hope that people do take that advice and uh, get proactive about it. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time talking with me about it and for explaining this, doing what you do. Therapy for therapists is uh, it's a pretty important subject to take on. Thanks so much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Yes, same. Thank you. Melissa Thiessen and Dr. Karen Dick of The Intentional Therapist. A link to their website is in the show notes. Be sure to check it out if you are a mental health professional who can use some assistance in the self-care space. Mindful is hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor. <laughs>